Now, what we have, uh, it, obviously, what we did uh, in our institute, just to bring you up to the speed here, just so you remember, uh, we started out by defining some of the key things in the Bible, kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven. And then I, I told you how uh, that uh, I want to bring you through the Bible, and I want to help you get to the point where, uh, let me turn that down Reminder, Robert, your Walgreens prescription is now ready to pick up. <laughs> there I go. How I told you that uh, the Bible's broken down basically into 17 sections. And if you want to learn your Bible, you can do one or two things. You can start in Genesis and work your way through and, and never really learn it that way because it's so overwhelming. Or the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's what we've done. We've taken the 17 or so natural divisions that are in the Bible and we're breaking them down section by section. I'm giving you all the information that you need on that particular section uh, so if you're doing your work on it, what you're supposed to be doing between last time and this time is getting all that material down. And if you do that, you'll come away at the end uh, really with an overall comprehension of understanding how the Bible uh, goes together. Then what we'll do is we'll start putting the infrastructure together. Right now we're framing out the Bible and putting up the walls uh, we'll start putting in the, into particular furnishings once we get this. But everything then will be in a context for you. And, uh, you know, so the first section was, you know, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And it was a concept of uh, the fall of Satan, how that fits into everything into the Bible. It's really the fundamental key to the scriptures, really. Um, then we talked about Genesis 1-2 and 3, the rebuilding uh, God's rebuilding the structure of the outer space, earth, and all of that, how it goes in there. Then the third section was Adam and Eve, of course, uh, the first two people, why, how, the commission, and all of that stuff. The, then the uh, fourth section was actually Noah's flood, and uh, that's a major part uh, in the Bible. Uh, then we moved into the fifth section, which was, the, the, the to me, the, the premier character in the Old Testament that it really starts at all. That's Abraham. And uh, I told you that uh, with Abraham, we begin to see the, uh, the nation of Israel. And I told you that when it comes to the nation of Israel, there's five sections that we're going to focus on as we come through these other 17 sections. And with Abraham and Genesis, we see the formulation uh, of the nation of Israel, God pulling everything together uh, to to get them as a nation. At the end of Genesis, you know, they're down in Egypt, uh, they, and then we know that that opens up the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those four books, we see the calling out. That's the second section, the calling out. Uh, then they get into uh, First and Second Samuel, Judges, and those places, and that will be the establishment of the nation of Israel. Today we're going to get into the fourth and the fifth section, and that will be the demise and then the captivity. Um, so we saw the calling out. And then the sixth thing, uh, we saw them go down into Egypt. 
and we know how important that is now. The seventh thing was then God calling them out. And each one of these is a very important section of the Bible that if you learn it and get it down, uh, it just kind of puts the Bible all together for you. Most people, they, they never get this, so they're left to themselves or they just get pieces of the Bible that somebody gives them, you know, and they really don't know what to do with it. The two main problems that people have with the Bible, and I've seen this all my life, and what I'm doing for you in Institute will fix that problem, these two problems. But here's the two problems they have. A lot of good people get saved. They want to learn their Bible. So, and I get this asked all the time, where do I start reading my Bible? You know, that's a, that's a legitimate question. That's a good question because they just got saved and they want to read it. Now, here's the problem with that. And I'm not saying you don't read it. But here's the, here's the first problem. People, when they start reading the Bible, they don't know what to look for. It becomes meaningless to them. Uh, they don't know what's going on, so therefore they're reading it. And what happens very quickly is, is they, they get bored with it, and I would too. So what my goal is to help you have a purpose behind your reading. I want you to know uh, what you're reading. I want you to know what to look for. And what we're doing by breaking the Bible down in these 17 sections, your life in reading your Bible will fall into one of these 17 sections. When it does you'll now know what to look for. The second problem people have when it comes to the Bible is once they find something, then they don't know what to do with it. And uh, we'll solve that problem because, again, there'll be nothing that you'll ever read in the Bible that won't fall into one of these 17 sections. When it does, you'll not only know where you're at, but you'll know pretty much what to do with it. Once we start the interstructure, sometime next year or maybe this winter, once we start the interstructure of putting all of the pieces of the Bible inside the uh, structure that we're building right now, you'll see how quickly you, if you do your work, I mean, just me sitting up here doing it, you going home and not doing it with it won't help. You're going to have to do the work. If you do the work, you'll learn your Bible. And you, uh, you'll be somebody that wherever you go in the Bible. I, I always tell people that, you know, a Christian had to get to the place where 90% of the time, and I'll tell you, there's some places in the Bible that are, that are tough, but I would say that the average Christian could get to the place in their life probably 95% of the time where they know whatever they're at, what they're reading, whatever they're doing, they know where they're at doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. And that ought to be your goal. Doing what we're doing will accomplish that goal in your life because you'll always know where you're at and you always know the context. So, you know, we, we will stay with that. So we talked about the calling out of Israel, that was number seven, the establishment, that was number eight. And today we're going to talk about the demise of the nation of Israel. And uh, we're going to go to a number of places here. Uh, but I want you to come over to uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter uh, 11. Now, I want you to remember that the books that we're coming through right now, and this will be true up to Second Chronicles chapter 36, the last chapter of Second Chronicles, 
the books that we're in right now are what we call the historical books. It's a running account of Israel's history. That's very important. You want to always remember that. I am breaking it down in these sections to show you the overall concept of the Bible, but I'm also doing it to show you the different sections of God dealing with Israel. That's why I gave you the five things, the formulation, the calling out, the establishment. You, you, I want you always to know where you're at uh, when you're in the Old Testament concerning the nation of Israel. And so all of these books that we've come through so far are, are in a chronological order to get you to, uh, you know, to where uh, the historical aspect of what God is doing with the nation of Israel. Now let me say this to you, and I want you to remember this. Come over here to the end of Second Chronicles, the last chapter. Now, they, we're going to look at it here in a moment. They go into captivity in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This ends the nation of Israel. But there's three more books that you need to be able to place historically in this timeline of history with Israel. And that'll be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That is the three books that follow 2 Chronicles. Now, here's what you've got to remember. And you want to get this down. Do whatever you got to do to learn this and remember this. Genesis, the second chronicles, is a concise laying out of Israel's history. It covers the formulation, the calling out, the establishment, the, all those things that we talked about. At the end of chapter 36, they go into captivity. I'm going to show you both places here in a moment. Then if you look after 2 Chronicles, you have the book of Ezra. Then you have the book of Nehemiah. Then you have the book of Esther. Now here's what you want to remember. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are all historical books too. If you look past Esther, the next book is Job. After Job, the next book is Psalms. After Psalms, the next book is Proverbs. After Proverbs, the next book is Ecclesiastes. After Ecclesiastes, the next book is the Song of Solomon. Those are not historical books. Those are called the poetical books. Those books, as they are in the Bible, do not deal with Israel's history per se. They are written during Israel's history. There's no question about that. But they're not in a chronological order of the books that you have. So remember... Genesis to Second Chronicles is an unfolding commentary on the history of Israel going through those stages. They go into captivity in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Now what your Bible doesn't give you is that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther take place 70 years after Second Chronicles chapter 36. In other words, they go into captivity. They're in captivity for 70 years, 
And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, Ezra, Nehemiah, who is the king's cupbearer, the next book, and Esther, who is the Jewish queen who gets on the throne after the Gentile queen Vashti is gone. Those three books take place after, they're historical books, <coughs> but they take place after the 70 years captivity. So <coughs> here's how you remember it. Genesis to Second Chronicles is a common flow of history. Once you get to Second Chronicles chapter 36, you've got a gap of 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, then you put Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That's how you remember it. Just take that much of it and get that much down. As we move into the other books of the Bible in the Old Testament, I'll show you where they fall in the line, but don't worry about that right now. <clears throat> worry about what I just gave you. You have got to see that. I want you to know how these books place historically, because that is the key. Because the great key to the Old Testament is history. You've got to understand what God is doing with the nation of Israel. You don't nearly have the problem in the New Testament because, well, one of the reasons is is that we live in modern history time. We're pretty prevalent to it. But when you get back into the Old Testament, you're in ancient history. You're, you're times that, uh, you know, that none of us are really relevant to. And part of the problem is, <clears throat> when you go to school, you hear a lot about modern-day history from Christ on, you know, the Roman Empire and, uh, you know, and uh, France and Germany and Europe and all that. You, you get that, <clears throat> but you don't get the Old, the, the Old Testament right, because all teaching in schools puts the emphasis on the Gentile nations and not what God's doing with the nation of Israel, so it's, it's lost. So I don't want you to lose that. I want you to know that God's central theme in the Old Testament, what he was doing, was the establishment of the nation of Israel. And it takes them through five stages. <clears throat> you go to secular school, high school, junior high, or whatever you go, <clears throat> they'll spend endless hours talking about the Persians and the Greeks and the, and the Romans, the great things that was going on, the great things that they did. <clears throat> God never concerned himself with those things. He never wrote one thing about any of that. All he wrote about was his people going through those five stages to establish them as his nation in the Old Testament and his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So you have got to see this historical outline. You've got to see how the Genesis, the Second Chronicles, <clears throat> is an unfolding history. And then you have a gap of 70 years, and then you'll put your books Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And those will be dealing with the remnant of the nation of Israel going back. And I've told you many, many times the reason why that had to happen uh, was to get a remnant in the land so at the first coming of Christ, the Jews would be in the homeland. So you'll want to remember that. Now, let's look at, uh, let's look at 1 Kings chapter uh, 11 here. Now, I want to show you what happens. <clears throat> Come over to 1 Kings chapter 10. <clears throat> Verse 
Now, here's where the Queen of Sheba comes to see him, and, uh, and it's, a, it's an incredible picture here. It's really a picture of the millennium with the Gentile nations coming in during the millennium to uh, see Christ in Jerusalem. But Solomon is on the throne here in chapter 10. And what happens here is Solomon is a very unique individual in the Bible. He's probably the most unique guy anywhere in the Bible. He's the only man in the Bible that I know of who is a type of Christ, yet he's also a type of the Antichrist. He's the only man in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 10, when you start that up through verse 13, uh, it's a perfect picture of the millennial reign of Christ. Christ on the throne, the Gentile nations represented by the Queen of Sheba coming in to uh, look at all the glory in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what's going to happen if you know Zechariah uh, chapter 14 with all the nations bring their glory into Jerusalem and that's exactly what happens. But look at, look at 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 14. Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. That's 666. From this point on, Solomon is a type of the Antichrist. He's the only man in the Bible who is both types. People have a tough time with that or can't figure that out. It's easy if you know anything at all about the Bible. The reason why he is is because the Antichrist is so close to the real Christ that you couldn't tell him apart other than one way. So he takes the man who is the greatest type of, of the millennium, Solomon. Remember, during his 40 years reign, there's no war. Picture of the millennium. And then he matches him up to the man of sin, showing you that the Antichrist, when he comes, is going to be a mirrored image of, of, uh, of Christ. And he's going to really deceive a lot of people. We talked about this Thursday night. And uh, look at 11.1. Now here's where it starts to change. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of Moab, uh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zinonians, and Hittites. Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall ye surely uh, come unto you, for surely uh, they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clave unto these in love. Solomon, we know, has a thousand wives. Um, and, of course, they're a collection of women from all these nations that he was told not to be part of or have anything from. And, uh, and he has, verse 3, he says he has 700 wives, 300 concubines. Uh, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord God as was the heart of David his father. Now, I want to say something to you about this, too, that you just make a mental note of this. Every, you're going to find this phrase referenced back to David all the way through these kings. And that's because the David is the gold standard. Every king in Israel has will be compared, good or bad, to David. David is the perfect king that Israel ever had. And every other king will always be compared back to him. And uh, so verse 5, And Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after uh, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord. Uh, here it is again, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place to Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, 
uh, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Mount. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which he burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Now, this is where he loses his kingdom. And this begins uh, our section today that we're going to talk about, and that will be the demise of the nation of Israel. Someplace in your Bible, I want you to put this little little drawing I'm going to put up here for you. This is what I call the apex of the nation of Israel. Down here, you have Genesis. This will be the formulation. Up here at the top, you'll have David and Solomon on this side. That'll be uh, the establishment. Even though the establishment starts when they get into the land, this is the dedicated establishment. Then you'll have, coming up through here, you'll have the... Uh, you'll have the other aspects. You'll have the calling out. Uh, then you'll have the establishment. That'll run you up to David and Solomon. You have, you have Saul. You have Samuel. You have all those guys, and it leads to the establishment. Then on this side, you have the demise. It starts to fall apart. It'll start to part after Sodom with Rehoboam, Jeroboam, and then the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it'll run all the way down here to the captivity. This will be Second Chronicles chapter 36 and uh, Second Kings 17 and 18. We'll look at it here in a moment. Now I want you to remember that little graph there. That is a picture of what happens to the nation of Israel. They get to the point where they hit the apex with David and Solomon, but then with Solomon it starts to slide, and this is the reason it slides, 1 Kings chapter 11 that I just told you. And it's something that you want to you remember. This is an easy way to get it down. Put this in your Bible at some point, I'll, probably, I'll show you where a good place to put it here in a minute as we come down through here. But this is what happens. Now, look at uh, look at uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, 11. And here's the first thing that takes place. And this is all the devil now wanting to destroy and, uh, and to take about and, 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 and break up Israel. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 11, look at verse 31. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give it the ten tribes to thee. Now, Jeroboam is one of, one of Solomon's generals. He's, a, he's one, of his, uh, uh, one of his men, led, led his armies. And uh, he's a mighty man of valor who Solomon put uh, in high authority, uh, uh, and now it, it, it backfires on him. And what happens here is we start to see that the kingdom gets split. You're going to find in the Bible that some, from this point on that you find the nation of Israel divided into two groups. 
And you're going to find that Jeroboam takes the northern tribes, which 10, and they become Israel. When you get over here in chapter 12, it says, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. Now, Rehoboam is Solomon's son. And uh, Rehoboam is Solomon's son from a half-breed Hamite, uh, one of the strange women found in 11.1. And his mother's an Ammonite, uh, Nama, I believe is her name. And so now we see the kingdom is split. Now, these two become two separate nations. And there are times when they actually go to war with each other. They don't get along very well at all. But what God did is when he rendered the kingdom from Solomon, then Rehoboam takes the ten northern tribes, which are called Israel, I mean Jeroboam, excuse me, Rehoboam takes the two southern sides, which are called Judah, and uh, now we have uh, Israel split. And this becomes the, uh, one of the famous tactics of the devil uh, to destroy anything that God does, and that is to divide and conquer. Once he divided them, they lost their unity. Now, this is why it's so important for a pastor to understand this concept and for his people too. Because within any church today, the devil will do the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of, in most churches, there's a lot of infighting, a lot of problems. People, you know, they're in rival positions. The deacons is a power play, you know, to stay in power. They get their little niche. They don't want to let go of it. They play. It, it's a terrible situation. And that's why churches like that never really do anything and wind up being destroyed. And uh, you'll find that many churches, just like the nation of Israel, go through bona fide church splits. Uh, when I, when a bona fide church split is you lose half your church. You know, uh, you, every church goes through a process that God takes out the trash. I mean, that's just, that's just the way it works. But uh, a bona fide church split is when you lose, you know, half your church over an issue. And uh, it happens all the time. And it's a thing where it happens because they get divided, and then the devil conquers them. Uh, if a pastor understands anything he has to do, he has to maintain unity. And he does that by, by preaching the Word of God, uh, building people up in the Scriptures, and, and then letting the Scriptures do the work for him with the people. You notice, I, I don't say a lot about things uh, like most pastors do. Most pastors, they harp on your giving, your tithing, you know, all the time and because the people don't give. And so they, they, they're beating them up on that all the time, and that's always the thing that they bring. I, I don't think I've ever preached a message here on giving at any point in time. Uh, and I don't really need to because I found that when you, when you just teach certain people to be certain things with God, there are certain things that just become natural. And I would much rather, because you fall in love with God through the teaching and the preaching of the Bible, and the Bible means everything to you, I would much rather you give to God out of the heart that you have because you love Him and what He's done for you than because I'm up there telling you what you need to do. You see, there's a natural process, and some things just happen. And unity is one of them. Unity is a natural byproduct of a church that is Bible-based. Obviously, you have issues in any church. You do. There's going to be little gripes and discrepancies. It's going to happen. 
you know, but the key is to keep them as small as possible. You're always going to have some people that you can't please anytime, anyplace, anywhere. That's just the way it is. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And you're obviously going to have people who get out of fellowship with God and they lose their perspective and they're going to cause issues. That's just part of it. But that's a very minuscule part of an overall ministry. When the unity of the church is there and the bulk of the people are maturing in the Word of God and love the book, they keep all those other things at a minimum. It's hard for somebody to gossip about somebody else in a church where when you say something to somebody, that person says, you say one more word to me and we're going to go to that person. If you've got a problem with so-and-so, why are you telling me that problem because I can't fix it? Let's go to the person that can fix it. It shuts it down pretty quick. And of course, that's, you know, that's the process. You know, when somebody says, I got a problem with this, I got a problem with that, and they're telling you about it, and you don't have the ability to fix the problem, and you say to them, well, have you talked to Bob about it? No, I'm not going to talk to him. About well, I am. Since you brought me into it, I'm not going to be part of your treachery. If you got a problem and you don't want to solve it, then I'll take it to the guy who can solve it, and you guys can work it out. It puts an end to it. It puts an end to it. <clears throat> You'll find that that with it in, in, in our own church, there are people who uh, that will get into situations and uh, they, they won't come to me and tell me about the situation. They'll tell everybody else out there, but they won't tell me about it. They won't come to me. They've got a problem with this in their family or they've got a problem personal with this. They won't come and bring it to me. You know why they won't do that? Because they know that if they come to me, we're going to fix it. And they don't want to fix it. So they want to talk to everybody else about it but they don't want to bring it to the one guy who can get it fixed in their life because I'm a fix-it guy. You ain't going to come to me and tell me you want to do this and you got this problem and, and not want to fix it. We're going to fix it. It may take us a while, but we will fix it. And it's a thing where that, uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is what you have to do to keep the unity because the great lesson of Israel was the unity went. They were done. They were done. It's just a matter of time. I mean, it may have went on for another 900 years, and it did, but they were done. They were finished. They were just going through the process of a slow death. They were never going to come back because once they got divided, they lost their unity. And the number one thing a pastor has to keep in his church is unity. And his preaching has to be as such that it weeds out those who don't want to be part of unity. And that's just the way it has to work. And, uh, you know, it's, so this is where the problem comes in. Jeroboam gets the 10 northern tribes, uh, and uh, he, he causes all kinds of problems with, with Rehoboam. Rehoboam gets the two southern tribes, <coughs> and they have conflict, and they have all kinds of problems. And, of course, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great study. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> and God had set up, that the Jerusalem was going to be the capital. And when, when Jeroboam, when Jeroboam, and David brings that in, and he establishes that, when Jeroboam takes his ten tribes north, he makes the capital city Dan. And that leads to Israel's captivity with Assyria in 1st, 2nd Kings chapter 17. 
And the great lesson is here is this. When you make something else the capital of your life other than when God designed it to be, it's going to lead to your captivity. It's just that simple. That's a great lesson here. He didn't make the capital of Jerusalem. He made it Dan. And Dan is, if you know anything about Dan, is the, one of the most pagan tribes that they had and had all kinds of problems. But he didn't, he didn't leave the capital in Jerusalem. He took it up into Dan. And uh, this leads to Israel's captivity in time. And it sets up the great lesson for us that when you make something number one in your life that God doesn't make number one in your life, you're going to wind up in captivity. And that's exactly what happens. Now, Rehoboam, <coughs> again, he's a, he's a son of Solomon, and he takes the two southern tribes, and they go into apostasy. And uh, it, becomes up, it, it becomes the part of the destruction that God is going to bring into the Israel and bring them into captivity. Uh, but this is all uh, part of the demise that I want you to see. And, of course... Uh, one of the things that I want you to see happens here uh, comes over to Second Chronicles. Now, let me say this to you: First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. They're two books that basically cover the same time period. A long time ago, First and Second Chronicles was called, and First and Second Kings were all called the books of the kings. Now we have 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. People wonder what Chronicles means. It's a chronological order of the kings. Chronicles. That's what it is. But here's what you want to remember. This is very important too. 1 and 2 Kings will cover the history of the kings, both the northern and the southern tribe. The 1 and 2 Kings puts the emphasis on the northern tribes even though it talks about the southern tribes. First and second chronicles will talk about both kings, but it put the emphasis on the southern tribes. You want to remember that. Now, when this happens, everything begins a natural process of eroding. And this is true in everything in our lives. What are the practical applications here are, are pretty impressive. And uh, it's a thing where Come over to 2 Chronicles chapter 1 here. Where everything starts to fall apart. Now what you begin to see from this point on in the Kings is a kind of a strange phenomenon. Now you begin to find... children and their mothers, not men, but children and their mothers on the throne as kings. And this is why, and people get asked about this lots of times, you'll find that it talks about, uh, and so-and-so was three years old when he began to reign, or eight years old when he began to reign. And somebody says, how can a three-year-old or an eight-year-old reign over Israel? Well, if you read the rest of it, and it says, and his mother's name was, in other words, he, he was king, but his mother was running it all because he was too young. Now, that's a prophecy 
uh, that's fulfilled in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4. Let's look at that. You want to get that down in your Bible. Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah 3, 4, And I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. See that? Now, this is what happens when Israel dumps the book, disobeys God, the devil comes in and splits them up, and then the demise begins to take place. And this is what you're seeing here. And the reason I say this is because I want you to see, I want you to see... Uh, you know, when you find these things in the Bible about the children reigning, I want you to understand why. And, uh, and, and now it just begins to come through it all, all the way through here. And so we begin to see that the, the history of Israel begins a downward spiral based on our little graph over here. And finally, after about... Uh, and we go through a number of kings, and uh, they're a great study in themselves. And uh, there was a little book I, I it's out of print years ago. <clears throat> I happened to have two copies of it, <clears throat> and I had it in my library for a long, 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 long time. And it's a little book called "The Kings of Israel and Judah." It's about that big. It's a little green book, about that thick. What a guy does. He goes through every king in Israel and Judah in chronological order, gives you every the background on them, gives you everything you need to know about them. <clears throat> I I wanted I wanted to go through that so desperately in my life, and yet I knew it was going to take me forever to go through it. And it was something that I <clears throat> didn't want to stop and start, stop and start, because there's so much information there. And I'll never remember that I was it was back in the day when I was flying around the world and we were taking teams places. And I forget where we were coming back from, the Philippines or Africa or some one of those places. <clears throat> and it was like a 20-hour like a flight. And uh, I remember that I thought to myself, that's, that's when I'll do it. I'll have one long period of time. So <clears throat> we flew out of wherever we flew up, wheels up. You know, I opened it up. 20 hours later, I closed it, and I had cataloged every one of those through my Bible, uh, putting it in there just as he had it, so I had a working reference of it. And uh, each one of them is an incredible. This guy took it back and showed you the proverb that was written about the king. It, it's just a great little book. Long out of print, I'm sure. <clears throat> and it's called The Kings of, of, of Israel and, and Judah, I believe. Just a dynamite little book. One of those ones that somebody would see in a bookstore and say, ah, I ain't going to read that. It's so boring. It is boring, but it's great. <clears throat> so you begin to see how these kings interplay. You'll get a good king like Hezekiah, then you'll get three or four bad kings. Uh, you'll get the character studies of the kings for your life and my life are phenomenal. You got Asa, who, you know, uh, gets a, uh, who gets a disease in his feet. Picture of your life and my life and my walk with God. Instead of going to the Lord with it, he goes to the physicians. It's a picture of you getting on your meds every day to keep your life going, you know. <clears throat> and, of course, he dies. And it's a thing where he dies because he didn't take what he had to the Lord because the Lord could have fixed it. you got guys like Manasseh. Or not Manasseh, but uh, 
Who's the guy that uh, wanted more life? Uh, who? Hezekiah. He's a good king, but he, he, God says you're going to die. So he whimpers and whines and complains uh, instead of just going home to glory. So God gives him 15 more years, and in that 15 years, he has Manasseh, who turns out to be one of the worst kings Israel ever has. It, it, great lessons there. You know what? Sometimes you don't want to be careful what you ask God for when it doesn't line up to the Bible because the end result is worse if he just went home with the Lord. You got Ahab and Jezebel. Great studies. Great studies. And you have, you, have uh, you know, uh, every one of them is a case study unto himself. And it'll show you something about your life and my life uh, because they're all compared to David. They're all compared to David. David is the gold standard. So you, you see the, it begin to fall apart in a demise. Now it finally hits the, the end there. For come over to Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six. This is the end of uh, the nation of Israel as we know it. Look at verse 11. And uh, Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that was evil in the sight of the Lord, a God, his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and he hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and all the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and his own dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words, and misused his prophets till the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Now, you better mark that verse. You better mark that verse. You better mark it, every one of us. God will put up with your crap to the point that he realizes there's no remedy for it and that you're going into captivity. It's just that simple. He'll put up with a lot. He did here. Now, my goodness, he put up with almost 800, 900 years of it from David to here, time-wise. And now we've come to the place where uh, he's, he's done with them. And he, he comes to the point that, uh, uh, that God says, you know what? Uh, I, I, I held off my wrath but it's coming now against the people. Uh, he outheld it off till there was no more remedy. Boy, you get to a place in your life where you ain't going back with God, you, you're just asking for it. And uh, therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, who slew their young men uh, with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon the young men or made an old man and him that stopped for age, stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. It was a total slaughter. 
and it was an absolute bloodbath. And I'm telling you what, it was a thing where it just absolutely went in and destroyed them. They, they, they killed all the young men, they killed the old men, they raped the women probably 200 times each and then killed them. I told you they threw the babies off the walls, they threw them up and caught them on their spears. It was a bloodbath. This is what happens when you get in your heart and tell God, God, there is no remedy for me. I'm staying where I'm staying. I'm doing what I'm doing. God says, okay, no more remedy? All right, no problem. And then he called the king of Babylon, and boy, their life just got worse. Verse 19, And they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burn all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. There's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath, and for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. There's your seventy years. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he might make a proclamation throughout all the kingdom that he put also in writing, saying, this is where he sent him back. Notice you have everything here that I gave you, and you want to mark this in your Bible. You have the fact that destruction of the two southern tribes going into Babylon. Then you have Jeremiah's prophecy. And Jeremiah's prophecy is that it's going to be 70 years, and then God is going to allow a remnant to go back. So he doesn't kill everybody in Jerusalem. He takes some of them into captivity. And, uh, and it's a terrible time. And, of course, uh, it's a time where you begin to see uh, how everything works, um, how God's hand is in everything. Now, I want to give you the time frame here, and I think this is very important. And if I were you, I'd write this in your wide margin at the bottom of Second Chronicles chapter 36. Put it in your notebook first. But here's what you want to get. These are the details on the captivity. Nebuchadnezzar comes down three times to take them into captivity. And you need to understand this. It's not something that you'll preach a message on or something that you'll give in a devotion someplace. I hope not, anyhow. But it's for your own understanding. You need to know this. This is history, exactly, and very important. Nebuchadnezzar hits Jerusalem three times. Now, we know that time, history, dates are running down in the Old Testament. We started at 4004. We're now down to 600 B.C. Once we get past the cross, time moves up. 33 A.D., 1500, 1600, 1700, 1900, it's it just the opposite. So you want to remember this. Now, we always count the captivity from 606 B.C. That is the general accepted date, but there are two other times that he comes down after that. But because that is the first one, that is accepted in the writings that you're going to read or history where it's taught as the start of the captivity. And, and it is true. But I want to give you each one of these, and I want you to get it down. Uh, the first one is 606 B.C. Here is where he defeats Jehoiakim 
and he takes key people down to Babylon. Now, this is where I want you to get this down. In this first one at 606 B.C., this is when Daniel goes. You want to put that, you want to know that. Daniel goes in the first captivity of 606 B.C. That's very important. When he comes down in 606, he leaves a puppet king on the throne. He basically defeats them, allows them to stay, takes certain people home, allows them to have a puppet king that is under his, but they're really no longer a nation. And in 597 B.C., the puppet king on the throne is Jehoiakim. J-E-H-O-I-A. C-H-I-N. And he leads a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar. So a second time, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and, and whacks them. And this is very important. This is when Ezekiel goes. Daniel goes in the first captivity. Ezekiel goes in the second captivity. Now, the third time he comes down is the one listed in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And this is, the date for this one is 586. And here comes back the third and final time. And Zedekiah is on the throne. And they wall up the city, the Jews do. They try to keep him out. Back in those days, the, uh, the, uh, the walls and the gates were there to protect people from coming in. So if somebody attacked you, you just locked the gate. They couldn't scale the walls, and you were, you were safe. The downside of that is, is all a king had to do or an army had to do was camp around you and wait you out till you starve to death. And, and that's what they happened many times. That's what happened here. He comes down in 586, the third and final time. <clears throat> they lock everything up and keep him out. So he camps around Jerusalem for two and a half years. <clears throat> nobody in, nobody out. No food, no water, no nothing. Now let me give you the dates for this. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege January 588 to July 586. The city falls July 19th. He goes in and ravages the city, destroys the city. He burns the city and the temple. August 15th, 586 B.C. Those are the dates that all this happens historically. And you want to put that, I would put that in the, I have it in the bottom of the wide margin of my Bible, uh, going up the side a little bit, but in there, right with your rapidograph pen. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what you have. 
And so you want to remember that because that's the two southern tribes going into captivity. Now the northern tribes, we'll find them over here in... Uh, 2 Kings chapter 17. Now the northern tribes go into captivity before the southern tribes. And in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18, <clears throat> you have a record of that. Uh, see, I want to get all this together here. Now, the date for this captivity of the northern tribes is 721 B.C. The northern tribes go into captivity, uh, and uh, then uh, a little bit later on, the southern tribes go in. Look at verse 11 of chapter 18. <clears throat> and the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria, and he put them in Hala and Habar by the river of Gozan and in the city of the Medes. Because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded and would not uh, hear them nor do them. Now in the fourteenth year of Hezekiah did Shennacherib king of Assyria come up against all the fenced cities of Judah, and he took them. And Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria, the legion, saying, I have offended, return from me, which thou puttest me, and I will bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah king of Judah three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord, and the treasure of the king's house. You see where this thing has went to? It's gotten so bad that they're buying off, trying to buy off the world with the treasury that were the special dedicated things that belong to the Lord. And of course, none of it works. So now you have a, a picture of what happens. And uh, this, this is, come over to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is... the psalm that deals with this because right now in these two here <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is done it's gone and uh, psalm chapter 78 is a long psalm uh, but I'll, I'll just kind of skirt down through it for you it says uh, give ear, O my people, to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. And um, let's see down here. Uh, verse 10, they kept not the covenant of God. Uh, God did marvelous things in their sight. 
uh, but they, uh, uh, you know, but he divided the sea and he did all of that. Uh, he brought them streams out of the rock. That's when they were thirsty. And he talked down here talking about verse 24. He rained down manna from heaven to eat, uh, all that stuff. Um, and then he says down here uh, in verse, uh, verse 36, Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth, and they lied unto him with their tongue. For their heart was not right with him, because were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, um, and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away, and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passed away, and cometh on again. That's one of the greatest passages in the Bible of why God puts up with us the way he does. As long as God sees that there's a remedy, I mean, uh, he'll work with you. When he sees you get your heart to the place that there's no remedy, you're in trouble. And uh, then he says over here, uh, verse 60, this is where you want to go. Mark this one if you don't have it marked. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, which he placed among men, and he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory under the enemy's hands. Mark that verse 16 and 61 right there. Time frame is 586, what we talked about with, uh, with uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the official end of the kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament. This ends the demise of Israel and starts the next section we're going to talk about. The captivity. No tabernacle, no temple now. Uh, we're in a time period now where God is finished temporarily with the nation of Israel. He says, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he had placed among men, and delivered his strength, that's Israel, into captivity and his glory, that's Israel, into the enemy's hands. Israel now is totally done till first coming of Christ. And the devil has done exactly what he wants to do. And of course, we saw this last week, how that all this is doom and gloom as it looks. All this is Romans 8, 28. God using Shennacherib, using Nebuchadnezzar, uh, using Cyrus uh, to do what he wants to do to fulfill his purpose for them. And then he just simply wipes them out and, uh, you know, doesn't think twice about it. So that brings us to the end of number nine, uh, the demise of the nation of Israel, and brings us into number 10. And that'll be the captivity of the nation of Israel. Now, there's three terms in the Bible that I want you to learn. And uh, they're very important. They're very key. People get them confused all the time, and you get a lot of questions asked about them, but they don't, they don't get them. One of the phrases is found in Luke chapter 21, verse 14. And it will be the times of the Gentiles. The second one will be in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And that will be the fullness of the Gentiles. The third one will be the dispensation of the fullness of time. And it'll be found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, those are three terms that most God's people have no clue about, and I want you to know the difference between them. So I'm going to tell you what the difference is. 
It's not hard. The dispensation of the fullness of time is simply when the dispensations end. And we've talked about before that, depending on how you count them, I think in the book we have in there that we wrote on dispensations, I think we gave 11 dispensations. Some guys make it 12, some guys make it 10. It, it's whatever, it's not a big deal. But a dispensation is a period of time by which God does something one way, and then in another dispensation, he does it in another way. The greatest example of that would be the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is a dispensation where God dealt with Israel under the law. The New Testament is a dispensation where God deals with the church under grace. But you're going to find that there's, there's, those dispensations help right divide the word of truth. For instance, we can say that there's a dispensation between uh, up to Adam uh, and uh, at the Adam to Moses, and then from Moses to Christ would be two dispensations. The dispensations before the law, dispensation during the law. That would be true. So a dispensation is a period of time by which God is dealing differently from one period of time to another. The common deal is that a dispensation is a period of time. That's not good enough. It may be a period of time, but it's a period of time, and the key is that it's a period of time that God is doing something differently than he did in the last period of time. That's called a dispensation. Um, we are called, we are, as Baptists, Baptists were always what you would call moderate dispensationalists. In other words, we believe that there are, there are some people who out there today, mostly in the evangelical world, that do not believe in dispensations but they don't believe anything anyhow, so it doesn't really matter. But it's a thing where, uh, obviously, it would be hard to say, I don't believe in dispensations when the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, the dispensation is the fullness of time, but that's their problem. The term that I want you to understand with what we're about to look at now is the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is simply this. The times of the Gentiles will be the period of time starting in 606 B.C. and will run up to the rapture of the church. And at the time when God is finished with the nation of Israel, the king of heaven is gone, and now God has turned the world over to the Gentile nations. When Daniel writes his book, this is why it's so important. I told you that Daniel went down in the first captivity. When Daniel writes the book of Daniel, he writes and explains to us and gives to us the times of the Gentiles. He shows us that the world now is going to be dominated by the devil through Gentile nations. And those Gentile nations are going to be the seat of his power by which he is going to run the world. You see, he couldn't run it through the nations, even though he was in charge of the nations. He couldn't run it the world through the nations back in the Old Testament because God was running the world through Israel and Israel just kept wiping out the nations. So he got the nation of Israel to get into all kinds of sin problems and then he could take them over uh, and, uh, and get God to whack his own people. And that ended the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so now, after 606 B.C., moving forward, we now know that, that uh, Israel is no longer going to be a world power. 
she is now subservient to all these other nations. She'll never be in a homeland again until 1948. When she got it in 1948, she just got a just got a small portion, just a fingertip portion. Nothing compared to what God gave Abraham. She's just hanging on by her teeth over there. But she's in the land. So <clears throat> what you have now is a picture of what takes place uh, during this period of time. And uh, I want you to see something here. And this is very, 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 very important. So let me find it here. a second ago, and now I can't find it. Hang on a minute. There we go. This is very important. Once the kingdom of heaven is done, this is, this is a magnitude of truth. This, is, this was worth getting up early for to come. I'm just telling you. This helps put the world together. Once the kingdom of heaven is gone, once Israel ceases to be the plant, the, the nation that God is going to use, now the devil brings in all the false religions during this 400 years that are going to be set up as the true religions. Once Israel is done, in the 7th century B.C., Brahmism comes into being. In 536, after Israel is gone, Buddha shows up. In 403 B.C., after Israel is done, Confucianism and Taoism shows up. And in the 3rd century B.C., after Israel is done, Hinduism shows up. In other words, <clears throat> none of these religions existed before the nation of Israel ceased to exist. Once they're gone, then the devil goes to work putting up religions. Now, all these religions, that I just these Far East religions, they all come to being over there in the land where the Bible was. And they're all mystic religions. Many of them borrow off of each other, <clears throat> but they all are kind of a spiritual spin-off of what Solomon had. When you think of wisdom in the Middle East, you think of the gurus, the 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 the, the, uh, the and the the the, uh, the, the with Buddha how wise he was. Confucius, you know, 
how wise he was. They're all counterfeit Solomons, every one of them. And the devil brought them up in the world after the wisest man that ever lived, lost his kingdom and the kingdom, God's glory and God's strength, Psalm 78, was taken off the earth. Now the devil counterfeits all this with these religions that are going to be <coughs> the dominating ones through this period of time. And even are the ones today that are so many people are, are part of over that, over that geographical location of the world. And this, is <coughs> this now is the end of the kingdom of heaven. Everything is done, everything is finished now, and now the devil is filling it up with the Gentile nations. When Daniel writes, notice when Daniel writes, he doesn't, Daniel doesn't start, Daniel starts with Babylon. And when he starts with Babylon, then he goes from Babylon, then he goes to Persia. From Persia, he goes to Greece. From Greece, he goes to Rome. And then when you get a little bit farther on, he gives you the other three nations that make up the uh, other Gentile nations that bring us up to the time period we live in. He gives us Russia, or excuse me, he gives us England, he gives us Russia, and he gives us the United States. And those are found in prophecy in Daniel. And what Daniel does is he gives you the complete list of the Gentile nations, but he also shows you that, uh, that Rome, once Rome comes to power, Rome is never going to be out of power. And of course, that's the great, that's the great study of how, uh, by the time we get to the New Testament, 300 A.D., that uh, Papal Rome uh, becomes, a uh, uh, Pagan Rome becomes Papal Rome under Constantine. And so it just goes to show you how that whole thing moves. <clears throat> the greatest thing you'll ever do, if, if you ever get there, is to, is to get a good depth understanding of how history works with your Bible. I know most of you probably won't do that, but uh, nothing will give you a broad-based dimension of the Bible and what God is doing better than understanding the things that I'm talking about. Um, I have been through it all my life. I, I've studied it all my life. I'm talking up here for the last hour and a half. I don't have one note on anything I'm saying. I'm just telling you based on what I have learned and what I have committed myself to memory because of the importance of it. And uh, I could talk to you for hours on it. I could go down so many roads that you'd be so bored you'd be all falling asleep by 3 o'clock this afternoon. <clears throat> it's endless. But it is what gives you the depth of the Bible. Most Christians are very shallow when it comes to the Scriptures. Most preachers are even less, or even more shallow. <clears throat> what will give you depth to the Bible is understanding how it all pulls together. This is why I'm bringing you through 17 distinct sections, showing you and laying out for you how, how it all works. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, the devil's plan was to destroy, uh, it was to destroy uh, the nation of Israel. He scatters them. And, and all this makes a lot of sense when you get farther on into the New Testament. <clears throat> he scatters them everywhere. The Sumerians... The Sumerians, when you get into the New Testament, you read about the Sumerians, and, you know, the Jews didn't like the Sumerians. And we know that the Sumerians are half Jews and half Gentiles. And we read about the Sumerians, you know, we read that stuff, but 
we don't always get it because we don't have any depth that where did the Sumerians come from? They came from uh, Shennacherib when he took the ten northern tribes into captivity. He put some of the Jews down in Samaria and they became intermingled with the Gentile Sumerians and that's where the Sumerians came from. Half Jews and half Gentiles. And they're scattered all over the Middle East, everywhere. And now we're talking about... <clears throat> 600 B.C. Christ doesn't show up for 400 years. So these people are gone now. They're scattered everywhere through Asia Minor. They're everywhere. They're gone everywhere. Nobody other than that remnant is in Jerusalem. They go everywhere. And after 400 years, they lose their identity. After 400 years, they lose their own language. This is why. It it all makes sense. A charismatic would never get it, but this is why it makes sense. This is why at the first coming of Christ, when the apostles are declaring the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel, they're speaking in tongues. They're speaking in tongues because there's Jews out there in all these other Gentile nations that have been there for 400 years that have lost the ability to speak the Hebrew language. So God gives the apostles the ability to speak in tongues so he can reach them. The crazy, idiotic, charismatic thinks that it's something to him. Why? Because to use the word depth with a charismatic when it comes to the Bible, it, I, I, I can't even use that term. I mean, their IQ is below subplant life. It's, 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 there's no reasoning to it at all. This is why they spoke in tongues in the New Testament. And this is why the Bible told you in 1 Corinthians that tongues would cease after a period of time. And they did. Because they were given to the nation of Israel. The Bible clearly tells you that some tongues are for a sign, and the Jew requires a sign. And he gave them the ability to speak in tongues because you had all of these, all of these Jews that were dispersed to all these other nations that had lost their native tongue. And now God wants to regather the nation of Israel. So what is he going to do? Well, what he does now is he brings, he brings in the apostles the ability to speak in other languages. And in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, he even tells you what those nations were that they were in the languages they were being spoken in. But you'll never get a charismatic to get that. Now, I'll tell you something else the devil does. The devil was busy during his 400 years. Not only did he put together Brahmism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and Hinduism, and all those other things, but what he does now is he, he when the Greeks come to power, uh, the great philosophers show up. And the great philosophers also are counterfeit Solomons. When you get into psychology today, <clears throat> which has worked its way back into Christianity, there's a church in Kansas City here, that used to have my discipleship program. They dumped my discipleship program, and the pastor wrote his own discipleship program, and he made it a lot better than mine. (laughs) Now, their discipleship program is in three parts. The first part is a classroom where they'll teach you about things in the Bible. The second part is that church teaches you, takes you through a psychological evaluation of yourself. And then the third part, uh, God knows what that third part is. I don't even want to know. I think you go out and all get drunk or something like those lines. But that's where the church is at today. 
the churches, and of course Colossians chapter 2 told us this, that, you know, uh, that, their, that, that philosophy would be the end result of the Laodicean church. And it all goes back to um, that in the world today, the Greeks uh, are held up as the wisdom instead of Solomon. I've said it before, when you go to college someplace and you get into a fraternity or a sorority, uh, there will always be Greek letters, Sama, Beta, Sinful, Kappa, or something like that. <laughs> you know, And it's a thing where those Greek letters symbolize that the Greeks were known for knowledge. And uh, in a worldly sense, they were. The Greek empire reached the apex of, of philosophy. You had Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, who their own personal lives were a disaster. But it, that doesn't seem to matter. Uh, it was a thing where, you know, that uh, um, they, they wrote many things that were held up. The Greeks had reached the pinnacle of, of what the world looked at as wisdom, even to this day. Now, this is why, just add some wisdom to you. This is why, this is why, this is why. You heard it first here with old Uncle Bob. This is why. In the Bible colleges today and in pastors today, this is why when they want to understand the Bible, they always go back to the Greek of the wisdom of the Greek and the Greek language. I know the Bible was written in Greek. It was a universal language. And today, it, it, all philosophers hitchhike back off the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks were noted for their, for their wisdom, and, uh, you know, and that's just where it was. It's during this time that um, supposedly the Old Testament was written in Greek, uh, and that would be called the Septuagint in the Bible scholar world. And you will find that many, many pastors today will refer to the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek Old Testament uh, that everybody says that Christ was using, and of course uh, he wasn't. And they trace the origin of the Septuagint back to 325 B.C., with uh, a letter to a guy who requested a Greek uh, Old Testament, completely bogus. And, uh, and this is the way that, you know, that uh, stuff like this, if you're a Bible believer, you know that it, it, it could be. The Septuagint, Septuagint uh, is sometimes called the LXX. The Septuagint means the 70. Uh, LXX is 50 plus 20, which is 70. And of course, uh, <coughs> Uh, in the letter, uh, it says that, uh, that the Septuagint, this Greek Old Testament, was written in three, 325 or 226 B.C. by 70, uh, by 70 uh, scribes of the, of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, hence the 70. And, of course, scholarship holds to that today. Most pastors in this city think that the Septuagint is very, very important. Uh, most of them believe that Christ used it. And of course, uh, <clears throat> for a Bible believer like myself, you know, I, I, you know the Septuagint wouldn't, is not worth the paper that it's written on. And I don't even need to see it. Once somebody tells me that it was, it was formed in 326 B.C. by the scribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, then I know that, uh, that it cannot be because Psalm 78 already told me that the kingdom of heaven was finished in 606. And I'll tell you right now, God wasn't writing anything in those period of time, but I'll tell you who was writing things, the devil. And I'll tell you something else. 
The reason why I know it's bogus is because God wasn't writing anything in 300 B.C. And I'll tell you something else. Somebody tells me it came from 70 scribes of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. In 325 B.C., nobody knew where the 12 tribes were. They were scattered. See, it's little things like that that keep you in track when you hear the garbage that's put out there by the godless, depraved scholars that want to be kin to the devil and try to make something happen with God between 606B and the first coming of Christ. The last thing God said in the Old Testament was the book of Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the last times that he spoke. When he finished with that, he sealed the Old Testament canon and God did not speak again for 400 years. And he spoke again 400 years later when his son showed up, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that time period of the captivity is, is a time period, those 400 years is a very key uh, portion in history concerning Israel and us because it shows us that, uh, that God is finished now with the nation of Israel and the kingdom of heaven, which we know as the literal visible kingdom, will, will, is done now. So we come down through time. Um, time grinds itself through history. You know, Babylon was in power. They get defeated by Persia. Persia gets defeated by Greece, Alexander the Great. And then uh, Greece gets defeated by Rome. And uh, Rome uh, stays in power. Uh, she's in power all up through uh, Christ's time, up to about 400, uh, 300 A.D. And then uh, in Europe, things were changing. Uh, the Germanic hordes, the Huns the, and all that were sacking everything in Europe and Rome knew that it was only a matter of time before Rome would be conquered because Rome had gotten so vile and so pagan and so godless that the whole, the whole nation was eroding, just like America. So right before Attila the Hun took his European tour and got his buses, European tour, Attila the Hun, follow us, um, what the devil did was he flipped Rome from pagan Rome under the Caesars to papal Rome under the Popes. When he did that, he knew that even though Rome would be defeated, which she was, the Huns came down, Attila came down, and uh, Attila, the other guy, came down and, and just sacked them bad. He knew that the religion would survive, hence the Roman Catholic Church. Hence, now we move into the Dark Ages where Rome as a nation is nothing. But now the devil runs the world through all the nations, France, Germany, and all those places, Russia, who become Roman Catholic, and then the Pope makes an alliance with the kings to do his bidding. See how it works? Incredible. Incredible. One of the most fascinating things that you'll ever do in your life, if you ever get it, is to get a handle on God working down through history. And it all starts with understanding God's instrument in the Old Testament was Israel, God's instrument in the New Testament was the church. Just simply follow how it works. Watch what happens. Get those books of the Bible historically down. Get the five dimensions of Israel from the formulation to the, to the captivity. And you will come to the point where you'll, uh, you'll really see what you have and you'll really understand how this thing plays out and works out. So Daniel, he brings us through. He shows us how that it goes to Rome. And then Rome never loses power. Rome stays in power. She just switches from a nation to a religion around 300 A.D. 
and she stays in power, and then within that Roman power, you'll find the last three Gentile nations that form the times of the Gentiles. The first one will be England. England becomes a world power about 1500. Uh, and she remains a world power to about 1900. In 1900, she comes off the scene, and the greatest world power at that point becomes Russia. Russia becomes the dominating world power. The Russian Revolution takes place around 1917, and uh, by the time you get into the 30s and the 40s, uh, and in the 50s and the 60s, three-quarters of the world is communism. She runs the world. Just like in England, when, three, when England was in power, three-quarters of the world was under a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When Russia came to power, up into the 60s and the 70s, three-quarters of the world were communism. You can't, wouldn't go anyplace in the world that wasn't communism. All of Europe was communism. I mean, China was communism, Korea's communism, all of Europe, Hungary was communism, Czechoslovakia ceased to exist, but it was communism, uh, Romania was communism, they all were communism. The Philippines were communist, everybody was communist. Three quarters of the world became communist because she was a world power. And then what happened? In your own lifetime, most of you, who was alive when President Reagan was in president? Anybody? You all were born? We probably, oh, Jamie, were you born then? You were there, honey? Were you there? I know you and I were watching on television, right? Yeah, right. What did you ask me the other day? You thought when the eclipse took place, you asked me how did the moon come between the sun and not get burned up because you thought it was so close. I do. I got it. But we watched that one together, didn't we? We both, we both heard President Reagan. I'm talking to you, Jamie. Look at me when I'm talking to you. We both heard President Reagan say those famous words. Don't nobody say it. What were those famous words that he said? <laughs> Tear down that wall. Remember? That ended communism. Communism fractured at that point. And uh, <clears throat> all the communist nations in Europe were no longer communist. They become democracies. <clears throat> Russia itself lost all of its power. She got split in about four or five different places. And communism as a world power ceased to exist. And what emerged from that was the United States of America. The United States of America then became a world power. And it is today. Now, I know that Putin and those guys are trying to get back and get Russia back where she once was. Never happened. Never happened. They're not brutal enough. It took a guy like Stalin to put Russia on the map. And uh, uh, the, it, it, she won't ever get back. America now is the uh, power <coughs> that God is using. <coughs> God used America to get the get it. God like used America like he did Assyria, like he did Babylon. He used America to get nation of Israel back in the land. And then you know what God's going to do? He's going to destroy America just like he did Babylon and Assyria. <laughs> you better learn it, man. <laughs> you better get it. You better get it. You better get it. He's going to wipe us out just like he wiped them out. He just uses us to get what he wants to get done. And then because we are no different than they are, we're just as pagan as they are. When he's done with us, he just folds us up like an old garment and puts us in a goodwill box someplace. And that's where we're headed. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, okay. In the 7th century, you have Brahmism. 
In 536, you have Buddha. <coughs> this is all B.C., before Christ. In 403, you have Confucianism and Taoism. And in the 3rd century, you have Hinduism. Now, the Muslims, they don't come along to a little later. They're around 570. And uh, God has a special place for them. He's on our map here someplace. Where is he? Where? Yeah, 570. Oh, yeah, right here. I'm sorry. He shows up at 570 in the New Testament. And uh, <clears throat> there's a reason for that. <clears throat> because once you, get in, once you get into modern time of church history, the Roman Catholic Church has an obsession for Jerusalem. She wants Jerusalem. The reason why she wants Jerusalem because the Roman Catholic Church is Satan's true religion. She is the Babylon mystery religion, the mother of all harlots. She gave birth to all the other ones. And of course, we know that uh, Roman Catholicism in the New Testament is Baal worship in the Old Testament. So she's been around for quite a while. So in the New Testament, she wants Jerusalem. And the reason why the devil wants Jerusalem is because of the fact of the abomination of desolation to what takes place in the tribulation period when he finally gets in there. So God was not going to let him have it before God's timing. See? So what God did is God brought up the Muslims in 570 through Muhammad for one specific purpose. That's to keep the Roman Catholic Church from ever getting her foothold in Jerusalem during the church age. We fought the crusades over it. The crusades with the Roman Catholic Church and the Muslims trying to get and, and keep Jerusalem. And of course, uh, she didn't get it. And if she would have got it, uh, it would have been a mess. So God didn't let, the de didn't let the devil in his church get Jerusalem. He used the devil's other nation to stop him, the Muhammads, or the Muslims under Muhammad. So Muhammad shows up in 570. He's kind of a key piece to the puzzle here of God keeping the Roman Catholic Church out of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church starts the Crusades under Pope Urban, uh, uh, and they want to go in around 900, and they want to go in and get Jerusalem, and uh, they fight 12, 13, however you want to count them, crusades over the next five, six, seven, eight hundred years, uh, and they never, they never get it. They get it for a little while, but they never can hold on to it. The Muslims just keep taking it back, because God was not going to allow that to happen. Uh, God will let the Antichrist go in when in God's timing it's time to go in for the abomination of desolation. He won't give it to him in this, in this church history time. So, you see that. Then, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, here we go, we'll close with this. I know I've given you a lot today. In the Old Testament, when God was finished with the nation of Israel, and they dumped a book, he brought in the false religions that I just gave you, Brahmism, all those crowds. Now let's flip on the other side. In 1900, 1800, when Christianity was getting ready to dump the book and enter into the Laodicean church page, God then also, the devil also brought in seven or eight more false religions that come in during that period of time. Unitarianism, Calvinism, 
Jehovah Witnessism, Mormonism, Seventh-day Disadvantages, and finally, last but certainly not least, the devil's main sphere of religion today, charismatic movement. Charismatic movement is the Christian Roman Catholic Church for the devil. If there was one main place where he hangs out in Christianity today to do his damage, it's in the charismatic movement. And there's a lot of good charismatic people in, in those churches. I'm not saying they're lost. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that's his Christian religion. If he would go to church someplace, the devil, and he wanted to hang out, he would hang out in a charismatic church. He would. Yes, ma'am. Oh, it started with it started on the East Coast, and it started with Unitarianism, and then it moved into uh, Mormonism, then it moved into the Jehovah Witness group, then it moved into the Seventh Day uh, group, uh, then it moved into uh, uh, the Charismatic movement around the turn of the 1900s, and all your little splinter groups from there. But those are the main ones. And I've given you this before when we've studied church history. Uh, you'll find that starting in around 1700, uh, God, to keep America where she needed to be, God brought seven great awakenings across the country, maybe from east to west. The first one in the 1700s was Whitfield and Edwards, the last one with Billy Graham in the 1950s out in California. You're going to find that these seven cults that pop up are ones that the devil counters the uh, Great Awakenings with. So my point is this. When Israel ceased to exist as God's people and dumped the book and God took his hand off of them, then all the other cults came in. In our time, when the church dumped the book and God took his hand off of it, we entered into the Laodicean church, the devil brought in those other groups. You have heresy groups on both sides of the cross. Got to get it. Got to get it. Got to get it. Yes, sir. You said the three captivities with... I'm sorry? The three captivities in the Old Testament, you gave the reference for the third one, as we read in Second Chronicles 36. Are there references for the one in 606? No, the one in... No, they're not. They're just in history. Okay. They're not found in the Bible. They're just in history. All right, well, we'll hold up there.